of a good underdog story. How many people love the underdog story? Just It gets to your heart. And when the little guy overcomes, we cheer like David and Goliath. That's always one of our favorite stories. Or movies like Rudy or Rocky. We cheer when the little guy overcomes the obstacles and beats the big guy. But sometimes the little guy really legitimately is not even able to come close to beating the big guy. It really has no chance at all. Kind of like this example here. I'll let that set in for a second. Now, I want you to remember that image throughout the rest of our time this morning because I'm going to refer to it a couple more times. With our Bibles open to Matthew 22, we, uh, if you need a bulletin, do we have any more bulletins? Yeah, Chris was back there. If you want to take sermon notes and you didn't get a bulletin, just raise your hand and he'll put one in your hand. I see some here and there. We're opening to Matthew 22. We've been in, in the series uh, going through the book of Matthew for quite some time now. We're in chapter 22. And we enter today, it, Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus last week on earth, the first time. It began a few weeks ago with Jesus entering into Jerusalem, that great city, his final time. We call that Palm Sunday. That was the triumphal entry. And then on Monday, he goes back into the city and has... And it flips the money changers' tables over and causes quite a commotion and people start attacking him. And on Tuesday now, people have gathered, the religious leaders have gathered and planned on how to attack him. Remember, they feared the crowds, but they hated him and the message that he taught. Now they're going to attack and Jesus isn't going to run away and hide. He's not going to flee back to a safe zone. No, we learn from Jesus, he stands with great zeal for the truth of God. And so we have these showdowns of Holy Week. This is part two, showdowns of Holy Week. One of, the, one of Jesus' powerful tools, we said a couple weeks ago when we were talking about chapter 21, that Jesus uses for these showdowns are his parables. You know, remember what a parable is. It's a story, a short story that's told to make one point and drive one point home very strongly. And Jesus is very good with these. He's confronting the hypocritical Jewish religious leaders, calling them out for their lies and their evil and their hypocrisy. Today, the showdowns of Holy Week continue, which remains as relevant today as always because, you know what? People still reject Jesus. People still reject Jesus today. They reject either receiving him at all or... Maybe many of us are guilty of this. We reject putting Jesus as number one in all of our lives, our entire selves. He belongs at number one, but we reject that. Well, we're going to get through most of chapter 22 today, starting with Jesus' third parable to the rejectors. And then he's going to encounter a series of attacks from different groups of people. And in those series of attacks that we're going to look at today, we see revealed the reasons people reject Jesus, even today, same reasons. And then embedded in, in Jesus' response to each of those attacks, we're going to find some of, the, some of the best truth from heaven in Jesus' responses, and we're going to learn from that as well. So, spoiler alert, all these groups that attack Jesus are going to lose badly, just like the little boy against the professional sumo wrestler. They have no chance. But each encounter reveals... A lot of truth. Let's begin, though, with Jesus' third bold parable, which pictures a wedding feast. 
So take your minds to an ancient wedding feast of a king, a king for his son. And the first point we see is our apathy and rejection. Our apathy and rejection are personal to King Jesus. In the story that we're about to read, God the Father is pictured as a king who is throwing a lavish wedding feast for his son. And he calls on people. He calls on people to come and enjoy the greatness and blessing of this feast that I'm throwing, that I prepared for my son. All right, let's read, starting in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call on those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, proclaimers, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So Jesus teaches here that God is patient. He keeps calling, he keeps calling, he keeps waiting, proving his goodness and love to us all. But people keep refusing, paying no attention. That is apathy. I don't care about Jesus nearly as much as my business, my farm. You fill in the blanks, every other part of life. And then that apathy turns into rejection, even violent rejection against God's people, even to persecution martyrdom. Now, this is all an unthinkable offense to a good king. How did he respond? Verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. See, the Bible repeatedly tells us, teaches that God is vastly more patient and long-suffering with us than his righteousness demands. He gives us much grace and much patience, but eventually... Righteousness is required, and righteous judgment is required, and his wrath burns hot against such rebellion. He destroyed those murderers and burned their city, and such is the fate of those who reject Jesus to the end. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Here's the goodness of the gospel. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And oh, the goodness of God that patiently waits for all of us to come, who gives us all a chance. However bad we are, no matter what our past is, no matter what our present is, we're given the opportunity to come to God through Jesus Christ. Now those religious and prideful people who reject Jesus will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but all repentant sinners will. Jesus, a couple weeks ago, said even the tax collectors and prostitutes, which were the two worst people in the Pharisees' minds, those who repent, doesn't matter who they are. Jesus makes you a new person, and you will enter the kingdom of heaven through him. Now, there's a little twist in the story in verse 11. 11, 
But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. There's a little cultural context here. An ancient king's wedding, they provided garments for all of the guests. You showed up at the party, at the, at the feast, and you were given a garment to wear for the party. Now, this man being without one of the garments from the king means that he rejected the garments that were offered right to the king's face. The point is, the Bible's very simple message that all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are saved. They have the wonderful promises from God of complete forgiveness and restoration of new life, of a new identity, and a wonderful eternity in heaven ahead of them. But all those who reject Christ till the end, who said, I want nothing to do with you, God, or your Savior, will be horrified in the end because they will find themselves trapped in the place with weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. That's hell. Now, this parable should have been soul-piercing. The reality of their rejecting God and his Savior, Jesus, who was standing right there, it was undeniable. But they denied it anyway. Verse 15, the next verse, is going to tell us that they, instead of coming to to faith in Christ, they went and they plotted and planned against him. They rejected Jesus. Why? Why do people reject Jesus, even today? Well, the rest of our text is going to be these attacks on Jesus. And each attack, again, is going to reveal a different reason why we reject Jesus. We still do today, either from receiving him at all, again, or for those of us who do believe, we reject Jesus a lot, putting him first on the throne of our lives and every part of it. Why? Well, that's number two. We reject King Jesus for personal reasons, several different reasons. And now here we have, in the rest of the chapter, three different groups of people who come to face Jesus in a showdown. And each of these confrontations will will reveal our personal problems, our personal reasons that we reject Jesus. And again, we're also going to discover some of heaven's greatest wisdom and truths in Jesus' responses. So pay attention to both the reasons we reject Jesus and then the amazing truths that Jesus teaches in his responses. Let's draw these out. We have three different confrontations here to examine. Reason number one that we reject Jesus as Lord is we are power-hungry and prideful. The first group of rejectors who try to, to trick and trap Jesus are the Pharisees and then the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians. Who are these people? The Pharisees are, they had been seen as the religious leaders of a very religious people for centuries. And over the centuries, that prestige had gone to their heads. They were very prideful people and made a legalistic ritual out of faith in God. Jesus couldn't tolerate any of that. And they couldn't tolerate Jesus. The Herodians, who were they? They're a little bit lesser known. They're Jewish leaders who were faithful to Rome and King Herod, and that's where you get the name Herodians. Now, they were opponents of the Pharisees in many ways. They didn't like each other, 
But they came together. They got united in their rejection against God, rejection against Jesus, and their attack on him. As they say, warfare makes strange bedfellows. So here we have these groups combining together. And they confront Jesus and try to shame him or trick him, trap him. And the subject they use is taxes. Taxes. It was Benjamin Franklin who said, In this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Will Rogers added later, The only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. (laughs) So taxes is the subject. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, here's your trap. First they butter him up really good. We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. They knew he was strong and they're trying to flatter him a little bit there. Here's the trap, verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, that that trap question is clever. This tax creates a dilemma here, a problem. See, paying this Roman tax, anybody who pays this Roman tax states that they are making themselves subject to a godless foreign power. Okay, but not paying the tax is defiance against Rome, who's in power, and will bring you under punishment. Jesus seems to be stuck in a no-win situation here. Answering yes would side him with the secular Herodians who supported Roman oppression. Answering no, don't pay the tax, would have sided him with those who wanted an insurrection. He's he's in trouble here. But Jesus is awesome. Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, and I love what he says right off the bat. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. That's a silver coin about the size of a dime, and its value was about one day's wage. And Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. Now listen. Just as Caesar minted coins that had his likeness on them, so God has placed his likeness on us. First chapter of the Bible says this, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, this is the triune God in creation, saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And they did. And let them have dominion over the earth. Here's what's happening right from the very beginning of creation. As his image bearers, God owns us. God owns everything. Now his image is on us. He owns it all. He owns us, all of us. But then he delegates his authority. He gives humans dominion over the rest of the creation. And we learn that God works out his purposes in the world through the works of his creation. And he has delegated his authority. He's got all the authority, but he gives his authority out to five institutions, each who have their own jurisdictions. 
that's a realm of, of, of authority that I'm, in, I'm responsible for, that I have. And you see these on your notes, God's five jurisdictions of authority. Now, all of Scripture teaches this, and I'm going to boil it down into just a short section. I talked about this last year, but I have to bring it back up again because here's where the critical text where Jesus says, give Caesar what's Caesar's and give God what belongs to God. And it's important for us to understand how God has delegated his authority in the world into these five different jurisdictions. So let's get this right. Because where a society is holding these correctly, there is great health. And anywhere there's a society that where there are overreaches and breakdowns, there is tyranny and there is decay of societies. So this is important. And each one of these could be its own sermon. But let's examine them briefly because we don't have that much time. All right, the first one is the family. God gave certain authority to the family. What authority did he give the family? God gave the family authority, the authority to be fruitful and multiply. That is the family's authority. Authority to establish the lordship of Christ in the home. And the authority to educate their children. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers, this jurisdiction of authority starts with you. Is there any question why Satan and human opponents to Christ want to destroy the family so bad? And they've been very, very good at it. The state of the family in our world today is a mess. The church, the church must stand to bring healing and perpetual health to the families, to the families of our church, as broken as we are, and to the family unit, the family in general in our communities. The church must also stand against people, all the attacks on the family. And that's the second delegated authority, is the church. What authority did did God give the church? Jesus gave the church the keys to the kingdom, that is, the authority to preach his word, the authority to gather in his name to worship him corporately, the authority to proclaim the gospel, the authority to give charity to the needy, better be doing that. The authority to edify and equip believers. The authority to observe the ordinances. It only happens in the church. To warn against false beliefs and to discipline members who are walking contrary to godliness. Those are important authorities in our jurisdiction. Now, every time a society, any society, turns its back on God, It tears down the family and it tears down the church. We've seen that play out over and over. We are today. And in replacement of God as our authority, any society from the Tower of Babel to the end of Revelation, which societies are still doing this, we prop up another savior object of worship, and that's the government. And that's the third area of God's jurisdiction, the civil government. God established it. For an accurate place of government in the world, let's read from the beginning of Romans 13. Just the first few verses here. Now listen. The Apostle Paul starts out with this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And so we need to be. They have God's authority, which he explains here. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, so they have authority from God. And verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. 
and those who resist will incur judgment. Now he explains what the jurisdiction of the government actually is. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. It's to be a terror to bad conduct. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The government is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So here is the government's God-given jurisdiction. To defend the nation, it wields the sword, to defend the nation, to punish evildoers, to protect the life of its citizens, to appoint righteous rulers. Are you listening? <laughs> to appoint righteous rulers, to judge civil crimes. It is not to take care of all the poor and all the world's needs with every program. It is not, definitely not to educate the children. As we saw, that is the family's authority. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Whose image is on our children? God's. Years ago, many years ago, there was a family in our church, not this church, uh, who made the statement that about once a year, they take all their kids out of the public school halfway through the day, and they all go watch a movie together. And I, growing up in this society, was programmed to think, oh, is that okay? You're really allowed to do that? Well, over the years, I have learned not only is that okay, because we have the authority from God, the education of our children, now I realize compulsory attendance shouldn't even exist. Some of you are saying, praise God, preach that. <laughs> the Department of Education shouldn't even exist. Federal government territory, that's another subject. But we're learning this, that all of these areas of jurisdiction are prone to usurp from the others. And again, let me say, any society which turns its back on God automatically, all through history, and in prophecy will continue until heaven, turns to the government to solve all the problems. Government's important, but it is not God. So we pay our taxes, but when the authorities overstep, then we respond, we appeal to the higher authority like the apostles did when they said in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than man. And a noble pursuit for us is to work to reform the government. That's a noble pursuit for Christians, and we must be there legally and biblically. All right, very quickly, numbers four and five. The fourth institute is the individual. This is important. We are all given the authority from God to maintain our own mind and body under the authority of God. So no one else should tell us what to do with our own bodies. As long as we're fit in body and mind, we have that authority from God. And we need to treat it like it's from God. And number five is the employer. The employer is given authority to transact business and to employ people according to the ethical commands of God. And so if you have employers uh, or employees, you know we're bound in duty biblically but we must do it right according to the ethical commands of God. Now, any of these five, much trouble comes from any of these five abdicating their responsibility. That means not doing it. And much trouble comes from any of the five overstepping and reaching out to usurp the authority into any of the others. That's tyranny. And either of those, abdicating and giving it up or overreaching into the others, unravels God's order, and that's how societies crumble. Personal responsibility 
is lost, but that's what he's established for the world. When Jesus says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, that means Christ followers need to fight all untruths and all disobedience in all of those areas. And all disobedience to King Jesus has to be left behind. Amen? All right. Well, there's a lot to it. That's a lifelong pursuit to be sure. But again, as verse 22 said, when they heard it, they marveled and they went away. Like, wow, there's a lot to chew on here. We did not trap Jesus today. But the showdowns, even though they left, the showdowns of that day were not over. Here's a a picture of Jerusalem, beautiful, when the day is almost done. There are still two more attacks that happen on this Tuesday of Holy Week before this day is over. And these show more reasons that we reject Jesus and then more of heaven's wisdom in Jesus' reply. Let's look next. We reject Jesus because we are secular and materialist. Okay, the Pharisees and Herodians, they took off. And now in come the Sadducees. Who were the Sadducees? They took their turn at trying to trap Jesus next. They are the wealthiest members of the Jewish ruling body called the Sanhedrin. Their position was that we can have our best life now. And they lived in pursuit of the moment for the present. They worshipped material wealth and people idolized them. Same thing happens in our culture today. The subject of their trap question uses a hypothetical question about marriage in order to trick Jesus on the truth of the resurrection in heaven. Okay? But again, just like that little boy against the professional sumo wrestler, they don't have a chance against Jesus, the king. Let's read verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down to the seventh. They all died. After them, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. That's a pretty good trick question, right? You believe in the resurrection. You believe in heaven. A woman's been married seven times. Who, whose wife will she be in heaven? Ah, but Jesus tells them they do not understand the scriptures or God. There is no marriage in heaven except the one that all of our marriages point to. That is Jesus with his bride, the church. Let's see what he says here. Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. We all live. And when the crowd heard it, They were astonished at his teaching. Like all the others who opposed him, their smirks disappear. They walked away in shame and marveling at him. And I want to say, this is something every Christian's got to learn at some point. Virtually every Christian. There's a a sense, when we don't know any different, 
of a little bit of a sadness when we learn that there's no marriage to each other in heaven. I mean, anybody who wants a boyfriend or a girlfriend, who has a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or is in a happy marriage, this seems like bad news at first. But we are assured through Scripture that is a lie about the glories of heaven. We are assured that joining with our spouse or that boyfriend or girlfriend, the new relationships that we have and the pleasures of heaven will be infinitely better than anything, anything here on this earth. And you get to be a part of that with your significant other, and that's infinitely better. The question is, are you sure that you and your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband and wife will be there in the kingdom of heaven, experiencing the pleasures and the glories of heaven? And so the people then, that week and today, reject Jesus in review because we are power hungry, we are prideful, because we're secular minded, which means we don't even think about God in our daily lives, and we're materialists. We only believe in and operate in what we can sense with our human senses. A third and final reason that we reject Jesus is because we consider ourselves to be the experts, because we are blind and deceived experts. We prideful and faithless humans either think that we are the experts, okay? We either think that we are the experts, we know, we know best, we know it all, or we appeal to the, this is a, a fallacy, we appeal to authority. Meaning you have to, we have to have a scientific test done over a long period of time, peer-reviewed by people with earned doctorates before we'll believe anything rather than trusting God's word, which God's word in all fields of science continues to prove true every time. So we are blind and deceived experts. The expert that approaches Jesus this time on that day is an expert in the law. He was a lawyer. He he sought to trap Jesus by asking, what is the most important law? Because This is why this was a trap question, because different people in the audience held different beliefs very strongly, like this law was the most important, or this law was the most important, this set of laws was more important than any others, or this set of laws was more important than any other, and people had their identities wrapped up in this. So no matter what Jesus answers, it's about which people is he going to offend? It's a good trap question. But Jesus is awesome. He uses the Old Testament law to answer this trick question about the law. And he summarizes his answer in a word, love. This is known today as the great commandment. Let's read these verses, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Even though this lawyer knew all 613 laws, commandments in the Old Testament, Mosaic law, he missed God's heart purpose for all of them, which is love. 
love God more than anything, with everything you are, and then to love our fellow humans, all of them, as much as we love ourselves. The problems in this world would pretty much disappear if everyone followed those two commands, right? Amen? All the motivations in our lives need to be driven by these two laws. On these two, he says, on these two depend all the law and the prophets. Now, had this lawyer really loved God, had he really loved God, he would have realized, recognized that God, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, was standing right in front of him, and he would have trusted him that day. Yet he was rejecting Jesus instead. Which brings us to the eternal question I want to ask you as as our first next step this morning. First thing for us all to do is to examine this question. Do I love God and others with everything I am and have? Would you just examine that in your own life, in your own heart, in your own mind today? If we believe in Jesus, if we love him and we follow him, that means he'll take first place over everything else in our lives. Everything. And then we treat people the same. All, every person. Do you? This is the first and greatest commandment. And as we obey it, the good news is we're really bad at it, but there is forgiveness. We cannot exhaust God's forgiveness. Amen? He will always forgive and receive us and cleanse us when we fail. But we can grow, and we're growing more like Jesus all the time. As we obey this great commandment of growing in our love for God above all things, it's really enjoyable, really freeing. And as we grow in loving other people, all other people, as much as we love ourselves, as much as we love Jesus, our love for Jesus will drive us to tell everyone about him. We like to talk about those who we love. And so as we grow in our love, we will tell everyone about him. And that's next step number two, is that the great commandment launches our summer series, Gospel Seeds, Planting and Watering. Uh, we haven't really announced this yet, and most of you might not even know, we are taking a little break from the Matthew series for the remainder of the summer. Uh, next week, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it right now, but the great commandment is what feeds it and what feeds into it. So next week, once again, to make sure that everybody's heard this, we're not going to be meeting here on this campus. We're going to be at Grace College's Orthopedic Capital uh, Center, whatever, the MOCC, where the basketball games are played. Lots of parking. A couple thousand people will be there from our Karis Fellowship, sister churches. It's just a great time. We're going to sit together, and then there's a picnic afterwards at Winona Lake Park. Okay. The following week, that's two weeks from today, we're going to begin a six-part sermon series, and it's called Gospel Seeds, Planting and Watering. Because Jesus' great commandment, once again, to love God and with everything we have and to love other people, whoever they are, drives us to the Great Commission. This is the mission of our lives. This is the mission of our church, to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, here's the, here's the problem, though. Talking to people about Jesus, for the vast majority of us, is like the least favorite thing. We're fearful. We don't like to do it. We freeze up. We don't have time to get into a long conversation. But it doesn't have to be so. It doesn't have to be so. And so we're going to take several weeks, not, to, not just to study evangelism, but to do it in the most theological, stress-free, and enjoyable ways. Does that sound good? 
All right, we are motivated by our love for Jesus and for our fellow humans. And we're going to end the service today with a special announcement about all of that. But let's end in prayer right now. And Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this word that you've given to us today. How we learn so much about our own hearts, the depths and darkness of our own hearts, and why we reject you. Oh, but the worthiness of you as the king of our lives. I pray that everybody in this room will either come to faith for the first time today and make you the Lord of their lives and live for the first time spiritually, be released from everything that binds them for the first time spiritually. And then all the rest of us, there is still a spiritual battle. There are still dark forces. There is still pride, rebellion, secularism, materialism. We reject it all. We pray that everyone will make you the Lord of their lives today. Thank you so much for what you're doing to grow this church. And I pray that now as we think outwardly that you'll give us Jesus' passion for the rest of the world around us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.